So we have, it's been seven days since we had our, our last congregational worship service at 8 o'clock. And since that time, you all have been mired in the things of the world. Some of it's been good and some of it's been a lot of garbage. You've read some good stuff online. You've read some really bad stuff online. You've read good stuff in newspapers, read bad stuff in newspapers. You've seen good stuff on TV, maybe, and you've seen like really bad stuff on TV. In other words, your mind has been immersed in the things of the world for a week now and a huge significant part of why Christians have been doing church for 2,000 years is to make sure that we meet on a regular basis in order to purify our minds through worship and through the word to get focused once again. And, and so we're going to do that right now and allow God's word to guide us in doing that. And as we turn to his word, would you pray with me and let's ask his blessing. Father, I thank you for your holy word today that has been given to us over thousands of years that is the only book on planet earth that truly and really comes from you directly, your love letter, your will to us. And so, Lord, you know what, here at our church, we teach this book unashamedly, and we ask your blessing upon our teaching that it would not be human stuff or the flesh, but that all that we say would be of your spirit and of you. And so would you do that now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a movie that came out in 2008 that told a very fascinating, albeit fictitious, story. You might have seen it. It was called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It was based on a short story by the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the movie starred Brad Pitt, and it was about a person who was born old, and yet instead of getting older as he went around along in life, he got younger. It was a movie about the aging process, but in reverse. There is no actual disease like this, mind you. Uh, the closest would be progeria, a genetic disease where somebody ages extremely fast. But it was an interesting movie to watch nonetheless as this man begins life with a small old body and gets younger as he goes through each season of his life. Eventually to the point where, I don't mean to spoil it for you, but he dies in the end and dies as an infant, obviously having dementia, barely able to think like infants are when they are born. So you can see the pictures up here on the screen from the movie just to get the idea of what is going on there. On the upper left, that's when Benjamin was born. Though a baby, he looks obviously like an old man. And then to the upper right there is him when he is a toddler, just a small child. So he's diminutive, but he still looks obviously very old. And then in the bottom left there, that's him as a young man. And so now he still looks like somebody who's much older, but he's obviously getting younger. And then in the bottom right there, that is him in old age. That is him when he's much later on in life. So you get the idea of this movie. And as you can imagine, much of the movie was about this guy's journey and relationships as he experiences a rather unusual, or as the title goes, a curious life. It's an interesting concept for you and I to think about, reverse aging. Instead of starting young and getting old, we start kind of old and get younger or increasingly immature as we go along. And though thankfully this never happens in our physical lives, I mean there is no known disease like this, I got to tell you, when I was watching this movie when it came out 
five years ago, what I took away from it, as maybe only a pastor could do, was a spiritual malady that I witness all the time among Christians, namely that instead of getting older and more mature as we go along in our walk with Christ, there are some of us who actually progressively get immature in our walk with Christ, or at the very least stay the same as the years go by. And it's true. It's sad, and I see it happen way too often, that a person begins a wonderful, salvific relationship with God through Jesus Christ, only to be stunted in his or her walk, or even regress, and never grow on to maturity over time, even sometimes years that go on over time. And though it might sound to some of you like I'm being awfully harsh and judgmental in my assessment here, what you and I need to realize is that the Bible talks about this on a consistent and regular basis. It does. The Bible describes those of us who have come to faith in Christ and then how there's a subset and many times a vast, all too large subset of people who never grow and even regress. So 1 Corinthians 3 talks about a carnal or a worldly Christian who has never matured. Hebrews talks about infantile Christians who should be eating meat by now but are still digesting just milk. And as we move on into chapter 4 of our look at the New Testament book of Galatians, it's going to address this issue now as well. So here's my main point this morning. And the goal, I'm going to state it to you in the negative. <laughs> We're going to get more positive as we go along here. And also we had a little bit of discrepancy about grammar. So your bulletin is going to be different from up here on the screen. But here's my main point, And that is that there is nothing sadder than an immature veteran Christian. Man, latch on to this because I'm telling you, this could rock your worldview. There is nothing sadder, I thought long and hard about those words, than an immature veteran Christian, somebody who's known God for a long time. And, and so uh, look at with me at chapter 4 of Galatians 4, uh, of Galatians, and how it begins. Look at the first three verses. It says, I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now here it is. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, let's try to understand this this passage here in context. As we've already established, the whole book of Galatians is about the gospel. It's about how the gospel has come to us, and what it involves is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life and a life with God this side of heaven. So when a person is seeking God and they find Christ, or as we're going to learn next week, Christ finds them, then they place their faith alone apart from good works in Jesus Christ, and this alone secures salvation and a walk with God this side of heaven. That's the gospel. That's Galatians. And yet part of what Paul is battling with here in the book of Galatians is the fact that that many of these Galatians who have initially come to Christ that way are now trying to go back to the law. They're trying to go back to a works mentality in order to please God. And so what Paul is doing is using this analogy here of being a child and being an adult to say, hey, you know what, before you knew Christ, you were a kid. Now that you know Christ, you're an adult. Before you knew Christ, you were living a works-based existence, kind of like being a child trying to please your, your father with everything you do. But now that you know God 
It's no longer by works, it's by grace because you're an adult. That's his point here in this passage. And though some of you who are tracking with me right now are thinking, yes, Jamie, it's saying that we are adult children of God who have already grown up in the faith by being in Christ. This is de facto true for us by being followers of Jesus Christ. Not so fast. <laughs> because though this passage seems to be implying that, you always have to compare Scripture to Scripture, especially when it uses the exact same phrases. And before we jump to a conclusion on what verse 3 means here, when it says that when we are children, we're enslaved by elementary principles of the world, but now that we know Christ, we're not. Look at verse 9. Interesting. Look at how verse 9 will use this exact same phrase. It says, but now that you have come to know God, we've already established that, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Whoa. Folks, there it is. Though indeed we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and hence are now adult children of the living God, it's possible to not live up to our new position in Christ. It's possible to remain infants or even worse, fall back into what is described here in verses 3 as the elementary principles of the world. In other words, it's possible to be an immature veteran Christian. It's possible in the church today for us to have a bunch of Benjamin Buttons running around, people who started off kind of old and now are getting younger and more immature as we go along. And the key to understanding this, and I, it just you guys know we're a Bible teaching church, so you got to dial into this because this is the Word of God, is that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. That is the key interpretive phrase in verse 3 and verse 9. And it's a fascinating phrase that the Bible uses. In the original New Testament Greek era, the secularists around that day used this phrase, used that word stoikia, which is the word for elementary principles, to simply describe the universe, the building blocks of the universe, the stars, the gases, the fire, the wind, the air. Can you get it? The, the, the elementary building blocks of the universe. That's how the Greeks used that word stoikia, which we translate elementary principles. But fascinating, the New Testament writers come along, and in only the way they could do, they took this word stoikia, used it seven times, and in a few of the cases, combined it with the word cosmos, which means world, and they put it all together to mean the elementary or basic, not in a positive sense, principles of the world. Basically what they're saying, this is the way you used to think before you knew Jesus. This is the way our world functions, how our world thinks, how our world feels, how our world acts. It's the elementary principles of the world, not a good thing. And you used to be like that before you knew Jesus, but now, obviously, you're developing a Christian worldview based on Christian knowledge, Christian love, Christian zeal, Christian passion, and so you're not supposed to think like that anymore. And so look at how Paul would use this exact same phrase in Colossians 2, 8 and 20. This, this will help fill in the gaps for you. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Ooh, there it is again. So, so he's suggesting that though we did die to these things, 
it's possible to still fall back and live as a worldly, immature, now believer in Jesus Christ. Which is why I say there's, there's got to be nothing more sad, nothing sadder than, than, than that. I like how Tim Keller in his commentary on Galatians says it when he explodes the meaning of this New Testament phrase to refer, and I quote, to money, sex, and mountains. <laughs> What's he saying there? He's just simply saying anything that, that we place above God, whether it be our money, our sexual desires, or even our love of nature, any worldly elementary principle that gets in the way of our maturity in Christ is what's in mind here. And this is exactly what I believe, folks, Galatians 4, verses 3 and 9 are getting at. And so maybe now you can see the, 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 the potency of our main point today, that there's nothing sadder than an immature veteran Christian, those who are trapped still by the elementary principles of the world, but they know better, and they've been now positioned and primed to function better. But as the title of our message goes today, they're stuck. That's such a sad thing. As you guys know, when I preach, I, I tend to get very applicational. And I tend to ask the question when I get to this point in my message prep, when I've done all the exegesis and I've understood, I believe, what the Bible is saying, I tend to ask myself, well, what does this mean for us today? Like, this is good theology and it's really good teaching from the Bible, but, but how does this apply in the 21st century? And so I was asking myself the question this week, and even some of our staff, what does an immature Christian look like? What are some of the signs and symptoms that you and I might agree on as to what is involved in being an immature veteran Christian? So how do we know if somebody's spiritually immature, or better yet, in our own life, if we're spiritually immature? And I want to suggest to you right now four categories, four biblical categories that the Bible affirms that would be true of any of us who have been stunted in our spiritual growth. And here's my challenge to you. As I go through these categories with you right now, please do not think of your spouse. Please do not think of your kids. Do not think of your neighbor or that coworker who's a hypocrite. Don't be doing that. I would really encourage you to put a spiritual thermometer in your own mouth and, and take your own temperature here because I'm telling you, there are folks in this church who think they are spiritually mature, and I'm telling you, by the Bible standards, they could use some humility. So here we go. Here's the first thing, and that would be lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. And by knowledge, I obviously mean a lack of biblical knowledge about who God is, who we are, and how he wants us to function in this world. This would be a key sign of spiritual immaturity. And so look with me how the Bible puts this. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 2. Paul the Apostle is speaking, and he's speaking about his fellow Jews who don't understand Jesus, but they sure got a lot of other Old Testament knowledge, and he's grieving for them. And listen to what he says. This is so fascinating. He says, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Whew. But not according to knowledge. And so there are those who can have an excitement about spiritual things. They're kind of like running in place, and yet because they don't have enough or even the right kind of knowledge, they are immature. And so today I'm telling you, I see it all the time. These are Christians who watch PBS specials or History Channel specials around the holiday times that bash the historic Jesus and they get all confused. And they send me emails saying, oh, what's that about? Is that really true? I'm like, no, read the book. It's not. Uh, these are people who go through a rough spot in their marriage or go through a rough spot in their parenting or, or go through a crash in their business world and they have no idea what to do. 
because they haven't read what the Bible says about what they should do in those situations. These are Christians who hear other Christians talk about rich doctrinal truths, whether it be truths like the fall of humankind or God's grace in election or even inerrancy and infallibility, and they have no idea what these other Christians are talking about because they've never immersed themselves in some of the doctrines of the faith. These are Christians who go into the voting booth every November and they see such important issues like the preciousness of human life or, or, or marriage from society's view or religious liberty issues and they say, oh, those are just political issues. Not realizing that they're moral issues that the Bible addresses all the time. You see, these people are the opposite of the Berean Christians. I love this passage in Acts 17, verse 11. Look up here on the screen. The Berean Christians who when Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, was preaching to them, it says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Wow. I mean, I'm telling you, if Paul the Apostle is preaching to you and I today, we probably wouldn't be going to the Old Testament. I wonder if this is right. We wouldn't be doing that. We'd be like, oh my gosh, it's Paul the Apostle. I mean, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He's been taken up into heaven and, and revealed truth to him. He's writing these directly from God. He's healing on command. And yet the Berean Christians are saying, you know what? Knowledge is really important for us, and our knowledge comes from the Word of God. And so we're going to check it every day to see if what you're saying is true. See, folks, I, I, you guys know me. I'm not suggesting that knowledge is everything, but it is the, if not a, key starting place for Christian maturity because God has given us 66 books over at least a 1,500-year period of time, and they are love letters declaring his will for us. And when we don't know what the Bible says, now don't miss this, we will fall back into the elementary principles of the world. That there's no way not to. That, that's the harsh reality. It, Jesus made that very clear. You're either for him or against him. When you, when you come to that fork in the road, you're going to go this way or that way. The reality is, is that to the degree that you don't know his word is to the degree that you will remain immature as a Christian. I, uh, I pulled this off my shelf last night when I was coming to the evening service. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, there you can. This is my uh, very first Bible when I became a Christian over 30 years ago. And it's a very meaningful Bible to me. And I, and, and, and I laugh when I see this Bible because back in the 80s, this was what people did with their Bibles. I'm dating myself significantly here. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time. Know that back in the 80s, we bought big Bibles and we put big covers on them to identify ourselves as Christians. And so when I became a Christian back in 1981, I, I got this Bible for Christmas from my parents, including the cover, because this was kind of like the big thing. And, and I love this Bible for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I love it is because my parents were absolutely convinced when I became a Christian that it was a fad, that Jamie had just gotten religious and this thing's going to go away over time and he'll settle down. But after about a year, they were like going, this is going to, like, this is to stay. He's talking about going in the ministry and all this sort of stuff. So they decided, and it was such a loving thing to buy me a Bible. And, and I opened it up on Christmas Day and it said to Jamie, with love, support, and Godspeed, mom and dad. What an, it was written in mom's writing, but that's okay. And, uh, and, and, and she tells me dad agreed with this. And, 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 and it just became my Bible until I went to seminary uh, about five years later. And, and, and if you read this Bible, if you were to look at it, I mean, it is just marked up like many of your guys' Bibles from the early days. 
I mean, I just would just devour every page and I'd underline and I'd write notes and it's a Thompson Chain reference Bible so it's got all these maps in the back and I'm reading these and I'm just devouring the word of God in those early days. And I'll never forget one day I was in my home church and somebody came up to me and I'm carrying my big Bible with me and, and, and she had heard me teach a Sunday school class and, and this older lady said, you know what, you're going to be a pastor someday. You're, you're going to make a good pastor. Now, now, she wasn't prophetic and she wasn't even predictive, but it confused me when she said that to me. And I mean, I appreciate the compliment, but what confused me is that when I said, why do you think I'm going to be a good pastor? She said, because you know the Bible really well. And I remember thinking to myself, what does one have to do with the other? I, I, I mean, I probably will be a pastor someday because I don't want to do anything else, but shouldn't everybody know this book? I mean, why just because I was a sophomore in college and I knew the Bible really well after getting radically saved a couple of years earlier, why in the world would they assume that because I knew the Bible really well, I should be a pastor? That, that really confused me. And that actually fired me up at that time to say, I'd rather be in a church in which everybody knows this book really well. Everybody's working towards spiritual maturity, not just the pastor who's preaching on Sunday. Amen to that? I mean, it's a sign of spiritual maturity that you and I digest this word on a regular basis and grow in our understanding of it. So take your temperature when it comes to this. And by the way, some people said to me over the years, well, Jamie, I don't understand the Bible. And you know, you're inspiring and I do want to get to know it more. What do I do? Gosh, I'm like going, I'm not a dimwit, but here's the answer to it. Read it. I mean, seriously, and I know some people say, oh, I tried, it's really boring. Oh my gosh, don't tell God that. Okay, I heard your confession. I heard your confession. It's not boring. It's you. It's not the Bible. It's your problem. You're used to like these dumb sitcoms that you watch that entertain your mind. And, and so it's not, it's not the Bible. It's you. So repent of that. Read the book. And you know how I know that that works? It's because when I first got saved, I just showed you my Bible, and I read it all the time. I didn't have Charles Stanley back then. I didn't have Chuck Swindoll back then. I didn't have James McDonald or Alistair Begg back then. I didn't have any of that stuff. I'm in a small little college town in, in, in Hillsdale, Michigan. I didn't have the internet to help me understand the Bible. I just read it. And there were some things I didn't understand, so I'd underline that and put a question mark by it. And then I'd read more. And, and, and over time, reading it over and over again, I started to get it. By the way, the Holy Spirit's involved in all this too, and I started to get it. And, 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 and so if, if, a, if a young, overly passionate, but not having enough knowledge college student can read the Bible with no seminary education and not having any of the resources that we have today, then guess what? This is not going to be hard for you. You just have to do it. You have to read it. So enough of that. That's my answer. Believe it or not, it gets harder. Here's the second. Here's the second symptom of spiritual immaturity. This one, by the way, I think is going to hit our church more than even this first one, and it's lack of love. It's lack of love. Now, now, now you got to dial into this, folks. The Bible could not be more clear. I'm going to give you some rapid-fire verses here, and I want you to do the math. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 1 Timothy 1, 5, the aim of our charge is love. Matthew 22, 37 and 38, our Savior speaking, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, so now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is, say it with me, 
love. John 13, 34, new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I'm telling you, I could go on and on. That like a scratch CD stuck on the same line playing over and over again, that's the Bible when it comes to love and when it comes to love being the spiritual barometer of our maturity. And just so that we're clear, because I don't want any of us to weasel out of this one, when the Bible talks about love, please know it's talking about relational love. In other words, love that is seen in how you and I treat each other and those around us. So it's impossible, according to the Bible, to say that I love somebody and then not treat them well or to get out of relationship with them. By doing that, the very nature of it means that you're not engaging in love. And the reason we know this is that whenever the Bible goes to describe love, it uses words like this, kindness, patience, gentleness, endurance, even truth-telling. Love always assumes relational interaction. Love never assumes that you're ignoring somebody that you don't like. Love never assumes that you're being mean to somebody just because they offended you. It's the opposite. And so I love how Larry Anderson, the pastor of North Bible Church that we planted a few years back, once said it. This is bold, but I think he's right. He said, if Christians could just learn to be consistently kind, there would be no stopping us. And yet therein lies the rub, folks. We are not always loving, especially as evangelical Christians. We are not always kind. Our churches today are filled with people who have really good doctrine. They've been in Sunday school since they were three. They tie 10% on the gross, and yet they're not very loving. And at the end of the day, this is an adventure in missing the point. And even worse, not only is it a sign of spiritual maturity, it does such damage, untold damage, to the kingdom of God, most of us are not even aware. Just your level of kindness or unkindness, your level of relationality or lack of relationality, expressing love is, is a game changer when it comes to how we're going to win this lost world. I'm telling you, it is. This just came off the press this morning. I, I woke up and I was getting ready for church, and I didn't have this last night when I preached uh, Fox News. Okay, I give it away. That's where I get my news. Fox News was running a, a, a story. It was a, it was an opinion article by Ann Graham Lotz. Do you all know who Ann Graham Lotz is? Uh, believe me, in 11 o'clock service, they're going to go who. But you guys, I, I know you guys. You, you know who Ann Graham Lotz is. And, and she wrote an opinion article called A Believer in Exile. And, and she basically says that research indicates that about 83% of all American adults consider themselves to be Christian, but the majority of those 83% don't go to church. That's the crisis that we have today in America. She says, the primary reason people avoid church pollsters say, even though they consider themselves Christians, now here it is, is because of wounds they have received within the family of faith. And, and then before you get too harsh on Ann Graham Lotz, she confesses, I have found myself living as a believer in exile. Because Ann Graham Lotz has been pretty bold in Just Give Me Jesus and some of her other things. And she's received so much heat doesn't this just want to make you cry? So much heat from people in the church. Somebody once said the church is the only army to shoot its own wounded. So much heat from people in the church that she says, confesses, I find myself living as a believer in exile. I don't even know what that means. There's a book I guess she's writing on this whole subject that's going to come out soon. But, but, but I, I read this and I thought, she, she's exactly right. We have no idea 
the damage we do as spiritually immature Christians when we don't forgive people, when we're not kind to people, when we're not patient with people. And again, it's simply a sign of your maturity. I can remember years ago when God hammered me home on this one. This is a true story. I, I'd just gotten saved, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going through my big Bible, and I'm living in my parents' home for the summer, and it's like summer of 1984, and, and, and I was having a lot of trouble loving my parents. I mean, I was judging them. I was mad at them, and I was angry at them, and I just was so impatient with them. I'd be snapping at them all the time. It was just a terrible witness because neither of my parents knew the Lord. And, and so I kid you not, I, 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 one day I was in my room, and I was praying, and, and anybody ever teach you to pray on your knees? It's not for little children. I mean, I was, I was praying on my bed, and I was down there on my knees, and I'm just praying there. And I'm, and I'm honestly, honestly, I can remember like I said, I'm praying, God, please give me patience with my mom and dad. Please give me patience. Right at that moment, my dad walked in the door, and he didn't knock. He just walked in. And I was so embarrassed because they'd never seen me pray. And he walks in, and he looks at me. And he gives me this weird look like I'm, some, like I'm a part of the Moonies or something like this. He gives me this weird look. And he goes, sorry. And I looked at him and I said, get out. I'm trying to pray. <laughs> I did too. And he shuts the door. And then I, I remember saying to the Lord, now what was I? Oh my gosh, I was asking for patience. I really did that. And honestly, I just started to cry. And I said, God, help me, help me, help me. I remember sharing that story with my best friend who got saved with me in the early 80s. We're in the same hometown together. His best man, it would be the best man at my wedding. And, and he was a brutal guy. I mean, really a tough guy. He's like the Apostle Paul. And I said to him, I said, Bill, I need you to pray for him. I'm having trouble having patience with my parents. I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'm not going to pray for you. That's an obedience issue. Do it. God's filled you with his spirit. He's enabled you to love now, just love them and stop making excuses. Ooh. You know what I did? I did that. I did that. Because patience is a behavioral trait that we display with those around us. And, and as Minerva Meyer said years ago, love is a choice. We have a choice on whether we're going to be loving or not. We have a choice on whether we're going to forgive and let something go or not. Now, now, there's a process to it. But we have a choice whether to engage in the process or not. And the reality is, is that we need a lot more Christians nowadays that are willing to roll up their sleeves and stop being immature when it comes to love. Love is a key sign of our maturity, and its ugly cousin, immaturity, is a lack of love. Now, much more quickly, because we have a few things established and about 10 minutes left, that notice me a third category of immaturity, and that would be lack of zeal or passion. Lack of zeal or passion. So again, look at how the challenge of the scriptures give us. Look at Romans 12, verse 11. It says very succinctly, powerfully, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. I love that phrase, slothful in zeal. I mean, I don't think it's an oxymoron there, but it's certainly a play on words. Are you dialing into what it says here? Don't be lazy in your excitement. Don't be apathetic in your passion. Don't be bored in your enthusiasm. You get the idea. It's basically what Paul the Apostle is saying here is that we have a risen Savior who has conquered the grave, forgiven us of our sins, filled us with his spirit, and promised us a place in heaven. And if that doesn't get you out of bed, we got nothing more. Because the reality is when you get in touch, as we're going to see in a minute, with the joy of your salvation and what God has done to save your pathetic soul, you are going to be so fired up. In fact, Christians should be the most fired up people on planet Earth because of what God has done for us. 
And though this is for another sermon, I got to tell you, when, it's, when I use the word zeal and passion here, I'm talking about everything from our service to our obedience to our evangelism to the general emotional tenor of our lives as ones who have been saved from darkness into light. And so the reality is, is that if you find yourself, I mean, there's going to be seasons of depression, don't get me wrong here, but if you find yourself never having zeal or passion or even conviction as a Christian who is now saved by God, you got to wonder, are you growing up? Because at some point it's got to hit you. He saved me. At some point it's got to hit you that, that life is here today, gone tomorrow. At the most 80, 90 years, we're like blades of grass, Isaiah said. They're going to be here today, gone tomorrow. And the reality is, is that heaven's for all of eternity. And that's what you have to look forward to. As Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's zeal, that's passion. And then fourthly, and we don't need to belabor this at all because it's the whole theme of Galatians, a sign of spiritual immaturity is a lack of faith. Simply put, not trusting God when things get really hard. Because that's what faith is. It's easy to have faith when things are going well, right? See, the Job stuff that I did in August, I mean, I think it was meaningful to a lot of people because they were like, you know, yeah, it's easy when you're not Job to have faith. But all of a sudden when you are Job and your business tanks and your kids are rebelling and your marriage goes south and your emotions don't work anymore and all that stuff, well, that's when faith is really needed. I, I've gone through crises like that, folks, where honestly, I've, I've been so down in the dumps. I mean, you can tell from my personality, I can be up and down. I've been so down in the dumps, so discouraged. And it's only those times where God says, are you in this for people or are you in this for me? Are, are, are you in this for the applause of men or are you in this for the, applause, the applause, audience of one, the applause of heaven? Are, 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 are you in this to serve me and trust in me through anything and everything? Well, why are you in this, Jamie? And it's a great challenge. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6 say it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's really true. So a great sign of spiritual maturity is that we are growing in our trust in him. So add all this up. There's nothing sadder than an immature veteran Christian, one who is still held captive by the elementary principles of the world. And how do we identify this? Take your temperature. Lack of knowledge, lack of love, lack of zeal, and lack of faith. Uh, these are all the hallmarks of Christian immaturity, but conversely, they also become the wonderful positive hallmarks of Christian maturity. When we have increasing knowledge, increasing zeal, increasing faith, and increasing love. Now, I promised you earlier that we're going to go home on a very positive note. So let me share with you the rest of the opening verses of Galatians chapter 4 up through verse 7. Then we're going to begin with verse 8 next week. So here's verses 4 through 7. I think this is really going to encourage you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, hang on to that word, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you, know, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do, do you see what Paul, being inspired by God, is doing here? He, he just laid out that, you know what, it, it's possible to be a spiritual Benjamin Button, and we shouldn't be that way. But then all of a sudden he switches gears and gets really positive and in a very real way, now don't miss this, gives us what I'm going to call the Galatians antidote to not becoming spiritually immature as we go along. And I love the antidote that he gives here. And I ask you to hang on to these words because it involves those words redeemed and then adopted 
and being an heir. Again, I love how Keller does it in his commentary. He says what's going on here in verses 4 through 7 is that we have been redeemed from something and we've been brought to something. So that the from and to going on in this passage here. What is that? We've been redeemed from our sins and our old way of life. We've been completely forgiven in Christ, a clean slate. Imagine that, completely wiped free. All of your sins in Christ, past, present, and future, completely covered over. They were as, as red as scarlet, now they're as white as snow. He's thrown them in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as east is from the west, he has forgiven us. You've been redeemed from something in Christ, but then you've also been brought to a new life as an adopted son or daughter of God, who, as we'll describe in a second here, the Spirit screams Abba through you because the Spirit now lives in you and you're an heir. And I would submit to you that if you can latch on to those dual realities, I'm telling you, that's the antidote to Christian immaturity. So I'll say it like this. This is your take-home point. And that is that spiritual maturity involves reclaiming your redemption in Christ while simultaneously living a spirit-dependent life. That's it right there. It's thoroughly biblical. And I would submit to you that this is an incredibly important dual focus being laid out here. Simply put, the key to spiritual maturity is to live daily in the joy of your salvation, reclaiming and cementing every day where you were and where you are now. And and even if you came to Christ as a kid, where you might have (laughs) been and where you are now. What, What a Christless eternity and a Christless existence would look like for you and where you are now. You live every day reclaiming and cementing the joy of your salvation in Christ, your redemption here in Galatians 4, while at the same time, and this is the trick, submitting daily to the indwelling Holy Spirit as you allow him to do his empowering, convicting, assuring work in you moment by moment. And that's the cool thing. See, for every believer here today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what the Bible says. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, that's the most positive thing I can share with you. You have the potential. You are primed to grow spiritually. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has now made his residence in you. And the Holy Spirit, did you catch it here in Galatians 4? This is so cool. Screams through you to God, Abba, which is an Aramaic phrase which simply means Dad. It's a very, very familiar, intimate term used in New Testament times from a child to a father that means I know you, I love you, I can sit in your lap and talk to you. And God says that now that you're his child, you can do that. You have access to the Father through the Spirit moment by moment each and every day. And here's what this will do for your soul. Let's just break this down. If you start to live in the joy of your salvation, knowing where you came from and where you are, as well as looking forward, going to a life filled with the Spirit and dependency upon Him each moment of each day, this will produce humility and confidence in your soul simultaneously. And that's the most cool combination that you can imagine, because most people don't have both. They tend to have one or the other, right? Most people tend to either feel cruddy about themselves (laughs) and, and have kind of humility, but they have no confidence, or... They're really confident, but they lack a lot of humility. I said years ago to a good friend of mine in this church, he's become a very, very close friend. I said, you know, my, my, my big problem in life is that I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. 
I said, I, I just ping pong back and forth between I'm filled with the Spirit, God is so good, to I'm a crumb and I absolutely stink. And, and, and I do, I ping pong back and forth. And I love his answer because this guy's really confident. He said, well, I'm, a, I'm an egomaniac with a superiority complex. <laughs> he said, that's, that's my problem. And isn't that just where we are? You know, you know, very few of us have that delicate balance between humility and confidence. We tend to ping pong more back between shame and arrogance. And the reality is God says that when you remember and live the joy of your salvation, remembering who you are and where you came from, you will be humble. You will see a hurting person around you. Instead of being judgmental, you'll say, there but for the grace of God go I. I have no right to judge because I have been there. And brother, may I help you. May I help you. Not judge you, but may I come alongside you. and See, you, you will be a loving Christian if you remember where you came from. But you're also going to be confident if daily, moment by moment, you're living in the power of his spirit, depending on him, not living a self-satisfied, self-centered life, but, but a life focused on Jesus and dependent on the spirit, you have confidence for daily living. I, I know this quote's going to send some of you the wrong way. But I was reading a book this summer by a, a Christian psychiatrist, What's his name? It's a great book. <laughs> Kurt Thompson. And the book is called The Anatomy of the Soul. And in it, he made this statement. He said, Christianity is not about being right. It's about being loved. Now, 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 bear with me here. He's not saying that Christianity isn't right. He's an evangelical Christian who believes the Bible. Of course he believes Christianity is right. What he's saying is, is that we don't wake up as Christians every day and, and, and run around everybody around us and even an onlooking world saying, we're right, we're right, come follow us, we're right. He said, no, you wake up every day, and in humility, you realize how loved you are by the Father and how loved this lost world is by the Father. And, and your main message to them is, you can be loved as well. I'm a beloved child of God. He loves you. Let me reveal to you, if you would, his love. It's a fine line between Christianity about being right and being loved. It is more about being loved. We are right, don't get me wrong, but we need to emphasize a lot more his grace and his truth as it comes to us through his grace. My hope and prayer since I've come here six years ago now has been that um, our church would be a balanced, spiritually mature church. If I had to give you my spiritual assessment of our church, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I will, <laughs> is that um, I think we do really well on the knowledge part because for 50 years we've taught the Word of God unhindered. And though some of you need to, in, in your personal lives, get more of the Bible, we do okay on the knowledge part. We, we really are known in the valley as being a Bible-teaching, theologically sharp, conservative church, and I'm proud of that. I think we could work on the love part. I hear lots of stories. I put a lot of fires during the week of the way that we treat each other that might cause some to become like Ann Graham Lotz in the way that they uh, approach even our church. I, th I think we need to up the ante on that. I think some of us need to up the ante on zeal and zeal for the right things, zeal for the cause of the gospel, major in the major and minor in the mountain, minor in the minors. And then obviously all of us need to always grow in our faith. Satan's wily, he hits us hard and, and we need to dig deep and, and trust God with everything in us. I think as we do those four things, I'm very hopeful, very hopeful for how God's going to use us as a church. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that, Lord, I get the wonderful privilege um, of being able to spend a couple days each week uh, studying and asking you how to present your truth to these dear people. And I thank you for your word today. And, Lord, I pray that uh, as we've talked about things, 
that you have laid out that have a lot to do with our lives today, that you would speak to each of us individually about where we are with you. Uh, Lord, may you make us very excited about our salvation in Christ, but then also, Lord, may we be ones who look forward to what a spirit-dependent, spirit-led life really looks like as we love and as we have trust and as we have zeal and as we have increase in knowledge. God, I pray you bless our church. Protect us, Lord, as we move along as a body. And uh, may we hear wonderful, wonderful stories of what you're doing in our midst as we follow and trust you with humility and confidence. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you guys.